Once again, I just wanted to say what a pleasure it is to be with all of you. And gosh, I have been just extremely blessed um, just worshiping with you, talking with you. And um, again, I'm looking out and I'm like, how am I supposed to focus here? <laughs> it's so beautiful. So I decided to take a walk this morning um, and, and one of these trails, many, many trails. And as I was walking around, I just thought, Lord, um, you are amazing. You're, you're just, you're amazing. And I was kind of overwhelmed uh, yet again, just at the, the grandeur of God and his, his majesty and his beauty. And so I thought, okay, Lord, focus my mind and help me to uh, just bring you some glory today. And, um, you know, as I was listening to uh, our morning cup of coffee, uh, I will tell you, um, that was such a blessing to me because I was thinking, Lord, um, you know, what, what is it that um, you would say to us today through the, the saving work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit? And as was so uh, perfectly stated, you know, in a word, come. And so, you know, I received that. Um, I trust you did too. Um, so yeah, the book of Acts. Um, we're going to be looking at the life of Paul today, and just by way of, let me get situated here, just by way of, um, I guess, review, um, I wanted to remind you what we talked about last night. We talked about the convicting, the convicting uh, work of the Spirit, and we defined what that was, and I really want to build on top of that and just kind of go into today. So it was the conviction of sin, the conviction of righteousness, and the conviction of judgment. And so Jesus is telling the disciples all of these things prior to his crucifixion. And so we're fast forwarding, if you please, into the book of Acts. And we're going to see what was the result of that. And so if you have your Bibles looking at Acts chapter 1, uh, in this opening chapter, we see Jesus is taken up into heaven in the presence of his closest followers, all of the disciples, along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the Lord's brothers, uh, they're gathered together there. And uh, Peter takes the lead, and uh, he begins to give some direction to the 11 uh, since the death of Judas Iscariot. And a man by the name of Matthias is uh, chosen, specially chosen, to give witness of the resurrection. And as they gather together to seek the Lord uh, in a time of prayer, uh, all of a sudden, uh, a rushing, uh, a sound of, of a rushing mighty wind uh, comes in. It fills the air and the Holy Spirit fills every single person that was waiting to be filled. And I think it's important that we note that. They were waiting to be filled. And there was a sense of anticipation. There was a sense of expectancy. They were waiting to be filled. They were waiting for God's promise to come to pass. And how vital is that for us? When we come to church, when we gather together, or when we're just in a prayer meeting, we expect God to do exactly what he says he's going to do. He's going to fill us with his spirit. And as we heard uh, last night, I don't know who said it, but I know it was said, um, it's, it's that command to be filled with the Spirit. And that's what we want. We want to be obedient to that. We want to step into that. And so that's what happened. 
And so people close by in Acts 1, they hear this sound and begin to gather and wonder what's taken place. And at this point, Peter, filled with the Spirit, he preaches a powerful sermon from the Old Testament and thousands of men and women are added to the early church. And by chapter 4, we read that Peter and John, they were arrested for preaching about the resurrection. Now, I don't know if that's super encouraging to you, but you get filled by the Holy Spirit, and the next thing you know, you're out talking about Jesus, and you're in the public square doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, and then you get arrested. And it's like, okay, Lord, am I doing the right thing? Yes. They managed to come in conflict. Get this. They managed to come in conflict with the conservative religious leaders and the cultural liberals. That would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then you throw into the mix uh, the, the priests, the rulers, the elders, the scribes. All of these individuals are not pleased with what God is doing in the hearts and minds of the people through the preaching of the gospel. And then Annas, the high priest, uh, along with others, listened to Peter explain what happened to a man that was healed. And so they're cross-examining him, and they take a step back. They need to confer amongst each other what they can't refute. They're like, obviously, a miracle has taken place. And it was the kind of miracles that Jesus used to do when he was there with them in their midst. And so they know something's going on, and with no recourse, they reconvene, they gather together, they get these two apostles, stand them in front, and they say, hey, listen, stop speaking about Jesus. That's what they did. They looked him square in the face and said, knock it off. Stop it. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. And they just stared. And the threats did not have the effect that they had hoped. And so what happened? Well, this is the beginning of persecution. And I might just say this um, here. You know, many times when we preach the gospel, uh, we're not met with open arms, are we? And people can say, you know what, just, I, I don't want to hear about it. Just don't, don't talk to me about that. And we're like, oh, okay. And we just kind of walk off. No. No, that's not what we do. We may not talk to them personally anymore, but we don't stop preaching the gospel. Because there's 7 billion people on the planet. And if we started today <laughs> and just started talking to every single person that we could, we wouldn't run out. We wouldn't run out of people to preach the gospel to. And so a threat is a threat, but persecution is coming, and it's going to intensify, and it's just a matter of time before Christians start getting killed. And as last night we noted, the death of Christians still persists even to this day. Be that as it may, the early church still continued to grow. And it didn't just grow, it grew steadily, as we see in Acts 2. And so, there was also a young man, a young Pharisee, Saul. He was watching all of this growth. He was watching all of these things happen. And the only thing that was growing in Saul was his anger. He was looking at what these men were doing. He was looking at these people that were turning to Jesus. Who was Saul? History tells us that he was born in AD 10. He was a Jew of the fam or he was a Jew um, and he was came from a family of Pharisees. Acts 23 tells us that. 
He was of the tribe of Benjamin, and he grew up in a place called Tarsus of Cilicia, which is the capital. It was a chief city. It was a Roman province in a place called Asia Minor. That would be modern-day Turkey. And so he grew up in this uh, center of commerce, and uh, he really just was exposed to the Hellenistic culture and the spirit of Roman politics. And so that's where he grew up. And although he grew up there, he didn't stay there. His religious training or his uh, uh, upbringing continued. His parents, both of them Hebrews, sent him to Jerusalem to learn at the feet of a great rabbi known as Gamaliel. And so those were his formative years in a Greek culture. His uh, religious upbringing was uh, at, at the feet of this rabbi. And what was the result? The result of all of his upbringing, the result of everything that Saul had learned was this. Keep in mind, the gospel is going forth. These apostles are preaching the gospel. Saul is looking. He does not like what he is seeing. The way that he has been raised, Paul's idea of salvation was vastly different than the one that he was hearing proclaimed in the streets. For him, it was not salvation by grace through faith. For him, it was salvation by right circumcision. It was salvation by race, a Jew. It was salvation by rank, the tribe of Benjamin. It was salvation by religious tradition. He was a Pharisee and a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And so his zeal for his beliefs, how he showed his zeal, it reached a fever pitch, really even going beyond his contemporaries. How did he demonstrate this zeal? Well, he killed the opponents of salvation as he understood it. That's what he did. He went so far as to persecute openly the people that opposed salvation as he understood it. And from the humid vantage point, when people would look at the life of Saul, he was blameless. Blameless from the human vantage point concerning the righteousness which was in the law. And so today, I want to talk to you about the saving work of the Holy Spirit. The saving work of the Holy Spirit. Looking down at your Bibles, I'm in Acts 9 verse 1. It says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Notice verse 10. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. 
And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to blind all who call on your, or to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came, he sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened, then spent some time or spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name or called this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the saving work of the Spirit. Lord, all of us like Saul were going astray. All of us like him, Lord, did not know what it was that we were doing. And you in your mercy broke in, revealed yourself to us. How thankful we are for that, Lord. And so thank you for this work of the, the Holy Spirit and the life of this man. And as we look into your word, would you speak to us, God? Would you speak to us specifically? Would you minister to us, Lord, and give us a clearer picture of your love, of your grace, of your majesty, and of your mercy. This is our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. The saving work of the Holy Spirit always has at its core love and mercy of the Father. Why does God save? Why does God save? Because he loves people. John 3.16 For God so loved the world. Why does God save? Because he has great mercy on people. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 The story before us is a story of God's grace, God's sovereignty, and God's love and mercy. Now, having said that, we need to be careful, don't we? We need to be careful not to read this story, not to have heard this story solely as a disconnected spectator. For the same thing that happened to Paul is the same thing that happened to all of us. Now it is highly doubtful that you were on a road to Damascus. 
and all of a sudden you were knocked to the ground and you heard God speak audibly and you were blinded for three days um, and he spoke prophetically into your life. It's pretty doubtful that that happened to any of us. However, every single man, every single woman, every single person sitting here this morning has been the recipient, is the recipient of God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, and has met the Savior personally. If you are a Christian, you have met the Savior personally. You've met him. How? By the saving power of the Holy Spirit. And so, going back in our thinking a little bit, in John, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 7 and 8, we have a glimpse of Saul in his element and what I will call his pre-conversion state. After the masterful preaching of a spirit-filled man named Stephen, we read that he was mercilessly stoned. He was killed. They threw rocks at him to the point where he died. A group of listening men, all of a sudden infuriated at what he said, turned into a furious mob. And Saul was there. Saul was there watching. He was looking at what was happening. And as people were walking by, he's like, give me your coat. I'll hold it. And they walked and they picked up rocks and they went after him. He saw all of that. And so as you look down at Acts chapter 9, notice something. Notice what it says there. Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. Saul made his rampage official. He obtained papers, written letters perhaps, authorizing him to leave where he was at, to go out into these outlying areas and have these Christians extradited back so they could face certain punishment. This is somebody who's upset. He is furious at what's going on. But before we move on, notice the word still. If we read our Bibles too quick, we'll just gloss over it. One commentator said that the small word, quote, is full of profound significance. For it suggests a continuity in an attitude. Something that one persists in despite something else pushing against it. When Jesus would meet Saul and tell him that he was kicking against the goads, it really meant that Saul was fighting against a very real conflict, a conviction deep within his heart. Close quote. What was that conviction? Oh, you know what it was. It was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It was exactly as Jesus had said to the disciples in the Gospel of John. If I go away, I will send the Spirit. He will convict the world of sin, convict the world of righteousness, and convict the world of judgment. And so we see this taking place. 
Well, we can't be 100% sure of what was going on in Saul's mind, but we do know this. Saul was a man who was not at peace with his fellow man, and he was definitely not at peace with the God of his fathers. He wasn't. And so when one day, all of that changed. One day. You know, we never know what a day may bring forth, do we? We don't. We don't know. Prior to our coming to God, God the Holy Spirit knew all that was taking place within our hearts. He knew what we were fixated on. He knew what we thought we wanted. He knew what we thought or where we thought we wanted to go. He knew what we wanted to do once we got to where we thought we wanted to go. And then in a moment, everything changes. God steps in directly in front of us and he convicts us. And by the saving power of the Holy Spirit, he calls us to meet the one who loves us and wants to have mercy on us. Like we heard this morning, he is saying, come, come to me. This is the nature of our Savior. He is seeking you. He is seeking me. And so I just have two things I would like to highlight. Two things today in our time together. They're going to come in pairs. The first thing that I would like to talk about is being convicted and called. Convicted and called. And this will come out of verses 3 through 9. By modern reckoning... By modern reckoning, Damascus is about 140 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem. And it was at least a six-day journey on foot. Now, I don't know if Saul was riding on a horse. I'm going to assume he was. But just in case you think he couldn't make that journey on foot, he could. He could. So whether or not he was walking or whether or not he was riding, we don't know. But here's what we know. He was on a road to Damascus. And he was going there with bad intentions. They had almost made it to the destination when all of a sudden Saul was knocked to the ground, blinded by a light out of heaven, the brightness of which outshined the noonday sun. And what happened? There was one thing that he just heard perfectly. He heard an unfamiliar voice calling his name and indicting him for persecuting God. The voice said, Saul, Saul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard to kick against the goads. Imagine Saul's thoughts. Imagine. Imagine his thoughts. Just go there now in your mind. When you read the Bible, it's good to put yourself as best you can in that text, not to reinterpret it, but to experience it. He saw this man crucified. And now this voice saying it's Jesus? Maybe his thoughts were, Jesus is alive. He knows who I am. And I am doing something that he says is wrong. I don't know about you, but that's, that's troubling. That would trouble me. If someone that I knew was supposed to be dead appears to me, hi, what are you doing? It's like, wait, what, what do you, what do you say? I uh, just, I'm on vacation. No. <laughs> you don't say that. He knew. 
It's interesting that Jesus likens Paul to a, a young bull that was kicking against sharp goads. It's an appropriate picture, I think, of all of us uh, who kicked against the intense conviction of the Holy Spirit before conversion. And so driving this point home, listen to this. One man said this, quote, Saul would have heard reports of Jesus' teaching and miracles, his character and his claims. Along with that, the persistent rumor from many witnesses that Jesus had in fact been raised from the dead and seen afterward by more than a few witnesses, close quote. What were those goads? What were those sharp points that were kicking against Paul? Or that he was kicking against. What was going on? Perhaps that was it. Perhaps that was it. All these people saying, we saw him alive from the dead. And he's just like, hmm. That's, what? No, you didn't. Oh, oh, he's over here. And, you know, he, he appeared to these women. It's like, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. And then there's the empty tomb. And there's this big investigation going on. And he's like, they, somebody stole the body. And then all of a sudden, there he is. That is shocking. That is shocking. These, along with others, were no doubt some of the goads that the young Pharisee had been kicking against right up until the point he met Jesus. He was called and convicted. He was called and convicted. The next thing, he was converted and then he was commissioned. He was converted and then he was commissioned. Looking at Acts chapter 9 verse 10, we see that Jesus tells uh, a man by the name of Ananias to commission Saul. Acts 9 is the scene of Saul's conversion, yet we see the confirmation of that truth in verse 17. It says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 15, verse 7, we read uh, Jesus saying, there's joy in heaven when one sinner repents. The text is clear. Paul is praying. Paul is praying and Jesus is uh, ministering to him. The Spirit is convicting him. What is true of Saul is true of you and me. The day that you and I realize that Jesus is God. We realized that we were sinful, conviction of the Spirit. We realized that there was no way that we could be made right, conviction of righteousness. And we realized that there was an ultimate judgment. Everything that Jesus said in John 16 has come to pass here in Acts 16. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. What is the personality of the Holy Spirit? What he does and how he convicts and how he interacts. He's a person, right? And now you see the saving work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not up front here in this text. He is as he always is, behind the scenes, pointing to Jesus, highlighting the things that Christ has done. And so, would you turn to Acts 26? Acts 26. We need to look at Acts 26 for Saul's commission. And as we go there now, we see that Paul is speaking in front of King Agrippa, Acts 26, verse 14. 
you see that he's speaking there. Uh, verse 1, it says, you're permitted to speak for yourself. Paul starts talking, and notice what it says in verse 14. And when he had fallen to the ground, or when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now look at this, fuller details here. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I have yet to reveal for you. He's commissioned. He's commissioned. Verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Powerful. Why are you sending me there? Verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What a scene. He is testifying of what happened. King Agrippa was a descendant of Herod the Great. And there's a lot of history there we simply do not have time to go into. But here's what I think is interesting. Paul does not stress his conversion to being a disciple of Jesus, but rather he focuses on his commissioning to be an apostle for Jesus. That said, testifying before Agrippa, he was commissioned to be three things. Three things in this text that we see in Acts 26. Number one, he was going to be a servant witness. A servant witness. Meaning that he would serve as a witness to all that Jesus had done and would do in the lives of the lost people there in his area. Jew and Gentile alike. That's what we've been saved to do. To be a servant witness. That's why we're here on this planet. The second thing he was commissioned to do was he would be a protected proclaimer. In verse 16, in proclaiming the truth about Jesus, he would endure much suffering in the process as he bore witness and gave testimony to the reality that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And third, he was commissioned to be an authentic apostle. Saul, in comparable fashion to the 11 disciples, would be commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles. And this really is amazing to me. He went from a self-willed, spiritually blind Pharisee of Jerusalem to an authentic apostle of the risen Savior to open their eyes. How would he do that? Only the Holy Spirit could do that. At the heart of God's ministry, the Holy Spirit is love and mercy. And so, the life of Paul demonstrates to you and I the saving power of the Spirit. The convicting, calling, converting, and commissioning work of the Holy Spirit changed one lost man to become an instrument of righteousness. Paul no longer or Saul no longer, he's Paul now. And years later, years later, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 
writing it down, looking at it later. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Listen to what it says. He goes, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Listen now, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. This is his testimony. This is his commission. This man was on his way to do things that he thought was right. And God saved him, stopped him cold. Amazing. God is good. God is good. Amen. <laughs> but you know what I think is interesting? God allowed Saul to enter Damascus. He didn't say, oh, turn around, go back. We're going to use you back where you came from. No, no. He says, yeah, go ahead. Now, there's a lesson there for us. Many times we think God will stop us cold and turn us around and we'll go back. No. God just changed his orders. God just changed his orders right before he got there. That's so the Lord. We can get all theological about it and say that's sovereignty, but yeah, it is. <laughs> that's sovereignty. God tells us what to do. So he doesn't stop him and say, no, go back. He changes his orders, and he would not enter that city as a conquering Pharisee. He would enter that city as a conquered man, transformed by the saving power of the Holy Spirit. And so taking our cues from 1 Timothy chapter 1, we can expect to see in our lives the direct results of the saving work of the Holy Spirit. And I believe the tangible results are nothing short of three things. Three things we can take note of. Number one, we are thankful people. We are exemplary people and we are praising people. That is the result, the tangible results of God's work in our life are we're thankful, we're exemplary, and we're praise-filled people. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Number one, thankfulness. Can you imagine how thankful Paul must have been after having been exposed to the error of his ways. It's kind of like he, he had to have his lights punched out in order to see the lights, you know. And that's what happened. Was it painful? Yeah, it is. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong, like we said last night. Nobody likes to be told, 
hey, you're, you're, you're in sin. You're a sinner. Nobody rejoices in that. But God, the spirit of truth, he doesn't make any apologies for doing that. He tells us the truth. He tells us the truth and in bold fashion, in bold fashion, the Holy Spirit didn't come up to Paul and rub him on the back. There, there, Paul. You're doing something wrong. You should stop that. No, the Holy Spirit stopped him cold. In his tracks, what are you doing? You're persecuting me. This is not okay. He got his attention. Some of us can testify that God did that to us. Some of us can testify in bold fashion, God got our attention. And it wasn't fun, it wasn't easy, and we may have felt like we were blind for three days, and we may have been like swirling around and not knowing what was going on. I'm thankful for this characteristic of the Holy Spirit. He tells us the truth about God. The second thing, the tangible saving work of the Holy Spirit makes our lives exemplary. In spite of Paul's past, God had plans for him. Can I just tell you this? God's enabling will be in step with his leading. God's enabling will be in step with his leading. God's opinion as to whom he places in the ministry is all that matters. That's all that matters. My opinion about somebody in the ministry doesn't matter. God's opinion matters, not mine. Why is this the case? Perhaps you wonder why your Christian brother or sister is in the place that they are in as it pertains to ministry. Why are they there? What's going on? Like they shouldn't be there. Well, maybe they're wondering that about you and me. Why are you here? <laughs> In a word, God's mercy. God's mercy. God's mercy. I am convinced in our modern culture that God does that. He puts people in ministry and we're like, why? They're, they're just, why? I remember one person said, you know, if somebody is a great speaker, but they're not uh, very attractive looking, you'll come just to, to listen to them. And then the guy goes on, he goes, if someone really can't speak, but they're really good looking, you'll come just to look at them. And he goes, but if somebody's not good looking and they can't speak, you've got the Apostle Paul. Right? I love that about God. I love that. That's a beautiful truth. God uses us as examples for mercy so that other people can see, well, God had mercy on him or on her. He can definitely have mercy on me. It's so encouraging. Third and finally, praise. Paul knew his past well. He knew it but he also knew his savior had redeemed his life from destruction. And it was this truth that brought Paul to a place 
of what I like to call spontaneous praise. I think of one of the, I think the greatest experience that a Christian can have is that of spontaneous praise over the reality of the grandeur and the majesty of the saving work of the Holy Spirit as he gives you and I clarity of what he has done in the past, as the Holy Spirit gives us glimpses of what he's doing in the present, and as the Holy Spirit gives us hope for, all that, for everything that he will do in eternity. Oh, men and women, look at your life. Look at your life. Take a step back and look at your life and see what God has done. Remember when you first came to him. Remember the mercy that he's shown to you. Remember how thankful you and I were. And remember that sometimes when everything is just a mess and God comes in, remember the beauty, the joy. Yeah, I'll say it, the experience. Yeah, I'll even go further and say it, the feeling of praising God. You and I are supposed to feel when we worship. We are supposed to feel something. Do we always? No. But it's okay if we do. We're supposed to. Okay? If you can look at the majesty of God and, that's cool. There's a problem. There's a problem. Okay? You may not show it outwardly. You may be, you know, very straight, based, but that's okay. Something's going on in there. There is a song that I will not sing, <laughs> although I want to. But as I think about the saving work of the Holy Spirit and the tangible evidences of it I think of this song praise God from whom all blessings flow praise him all creatures here below praise him above all you heavenly hosts praise Father Son and Holy Ghost amen let's pray Father, we are so thankful for the saving work of the Spirit. Lord, we are so grateful for what you did in the life of this man. You used him as an example for all that would be saved speaking to us this truth. If I can save a man like that, imagine what I could do with someone that's not so hardened, so irate over the things of God. Lord, such were some of us, but you saved us. Lord, we thank you for your saving work. We thank you for your um, sanctifying work. We thank you, Lord, 
for all that you're doing in these churches here in this great country. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would so fill us to overflow that we would be as you are, Lord, bold, truth-speaking, evangelistic. And that we would love the people around us and that we would be a thankful people, an exemplary people, and a praise-filled people. And people would see our lives and know that we have been with you. People would see the work that is done through our feeble hands by your power, your spirit. And they would say there's something about this collection of people that they would inquire. Lord, please use us. Please use us, Lord. Please pour out your spirit. Please receive glory from our lives today. That's all we have, Lord, is today. And we rejoice in it, Lord. Thank you that you, our, you are our God and we are your people. We are the sheep of your hand. We're the people of your pastor. Lord, just do all your pleasure through us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.